0: If you would, please join me and turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Judges, chapter 15. We continue our exposition through Judges, and it continues to amaze me how appropriate many of these messages are considering our current circumstances and our current situation. I think that the Lord is, is teaching us and growing us, and pray that that effect will continue to help us to love Him more and to be more like Him. Judges chapter 15. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, "'Let me go into my wife in her room.' But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, "'I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead.' And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. But we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock and when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have slain a thousand men. So it was when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lei. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now I shall die of thirst and fail and, and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. So God split the hollow place that is in Lei, and water came out, and he revived. Therefore he called its name en which is in Lei to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. I think this is one of those passages that casual readers of the Bible uh, use to give it a bad reputation. People who don't understand the whole of Scripture, people who don't understand the whole of God's message and of God's meaning, people who, who miss the context, will draw out a passage like this to diminish... The word of God. It's no secret that the Bible contains some very strange events and some very strange actions. But we have to remember that that is exactly why they are recorded, because they are strange. Most of the time that exists in a biblical narrative, people are going about their daily business. Most of the history of, of, of biblical history is normal, everyday life. What is recorded in Scripture are the unique things. What is recorded in Scripture are the ways in which God intercedes into the natural order of things and causes strange things to happen. That's why they're set down. That's why God records them, ultimately, to glorify himself, not the people. Not to make these things just seem weird and hard to believe. And the person who goes from being a casual reader to a deep and persistent student of the Scripture... We'll recognize that each one of these messages is meant to draw one to Christ, to the power of the gospel, to the power of God to overcome the natural order of our failings and of our weakness and of our stupidity, and to do what he will despite us. Everything here in the Scripture has a uniqueness to it. And there is also plenty of history that is recorded in modern times, that is outstanding, that secularists do not doubt. When we become a a student of Scripture, we see it as a logical truth that does make sense in its context. Now, that being said, just as these events are not typically normal for uh, an average person's life, Samson is not a normal person. We followed his life from the announcement of his birth. Samson was not meant to be a normal person. Samson is someone who is particularly uh, blessed and chosen and appointed by God to do a certain task. And as he is consecrated unto the Lord, or is supposed to be consecrated unto the Lord, he is someone who stands out and has special gifting and has the power of God upon him. Therefore, what he does is just not normal. His time was also not a peaceful and average time. It was not a good time to be alive. The time of the judges was a very rough period in Israel's history. And we followed that the past several chapters as we've worked through this book. We're dealing with generations of oppression, of sin, of liberty, and then oppression again. We are dealing with tribes who have outside invaders come in as their oppressors, and then a deliverer is raised up, and then they are back to governing themselves. But while they govern themselves, they still compete with each other. There's very little unity there, only to fall into sin and idolatry and only to be oppressed again. Now, when we look at the events of the Old Testament, and we see things that uh, the heroes of a chapter are are committing, and we think that's heroic, slaughtering a thousand people. We have to understand the the depth of the oppression that we're dealing with at this time and the depth of the evil of an Old Testament context. The oppression that God's people find themselves under is not a social oppression. It's not a cultural oppression. It is real, brutal, overwhelming total oppression don't judge the actions of someone who is trying to overthrow an oppressor in scripture without first grasping the culture of an ancient world and the culture of the oppressors the Philistines were a particularly nasty group of thugs Okay, you have to understand that when the Bible talks about someone coming in and oppressing Israel we are talking about them doing whatever they please destroying food sources, destroying homes, raping and pillaging, capturing people, killing people without a thought, looking at people as nothing but animals and objects and doing whatever they will to show their authority and to show their power. What they do is they manipulate by fear and they manipulate by violence and they manipulate in every way they can to keep their thumb Under uh, under another group of people that they at the present moment have a stronger ability to control. It is the worst of oppression. It is an oppression that you and I, having lived in America, have never felt, and do not understand. It is an oppression that, perhaps, the last several generations in the West has never fully understood. You could say yes. During World War II, and you know, under under Nazi rule, there was an oppression that was similar to this. Slavery would be an oppression similar to this. And so the response of those trying to throw off the oppression is one that becomes understandable when we grasp the weight of it. The Philistines would take everything, and you are only something that they can use to exploit to achieve a selfish goal. You mean nothing. That is oppression. Now, Samson's tactics are interesting and complex. The complexity of this situation is that God is using Samson despite himself. When we look at the first few verses of chapter 15, and we see him dealing with uh, his wife's parents, and we see that he responds in a kind of extreme way to the situation. Remember, again, this depends on culture and context. Here he is, he's not a man after God's own heart. As we explained last week, he is a self-absorbed man. He's one who understands that he's chosen by God and understands that there is a power of God that comes upon him, but one who exploits that and uses that for his own ends or one who dismisses it uh, to serve himself and to serve his own means. Samson's not someone we, we as Christians admire, but Samson is someone that humanity in its own self-nature tends to admire because of his craftiness and because of his ambition. So... He feels dismayed at his wife, and he goes away. That's where we left off with the last chapter. But now he's starting to miss her. And he comes back, and he's trying to make amends, and he visits his wife with a young goat. But the father uh, of his wife says, Well, we gave her to somebody else. She's married somebody else now. Uh, We thought you would not want her anymore. You remember, these pagan Philistines are not bound by a concept of God's marriage. They do their own thing. And it's no big deal for them to do this uh, because the bond of marriage to them is not sacred like it should be with someone who loves the Lord God. Samson, not being a great, a great one to adhere to Scripture, still can't let that go. He still sees a little bit more sacredness to his marriage, and he's not he's not going to uh, marry his, sister, his wife's sister so readily. Perhaps he's thinking of Leviticus where that would not be the case. Perhaps here he wants to pick and choose uh, where he wants to honor the Lord. But nonetheless, what he does is he figures that he is going to uh, punish the Philistines as a whole for the actions of these people. And he's going to do it in a crafty way that the finger doesn't get immediately pointed at him. Now, what I am saying here is that Samson's motives are selfish. But God takes Samson's motives and he uses them to advance a greater plan, and that is... Uh, an attack and a weakening of the Philistines, who are right now the enemy of God's people as a whole. The Philistines are not so interested in this little situation of Samson and his wife, but they would be interested when their crops and food source is destroyed. God weakens them through this process. And Samson, of course, being the crafty individual that he is, being the one who has a blessing uh, of God upon him and an ability to do some marvelous things that he is, being very resourceful, being very strong, he captures a number of foxes or perhaps jackals. There's some debate as to what exactly they are, but nonetheless, they are they are something that is akin to a fox or fox-like animal. He captures them. He rounds them up. He's able to keep them in an area where he's able to tie their tails together. Together And then he's able to attach a firebrand, which is something that uh, is able to burn slowly enough and doesn't affect the foxes, that he can then release them into the standing corn. We read that this was the time of wheat harvest. So the, the standing wheat was ripe for the picking. This was ready to feed an army or feed a city. This was ready to have a benefit on the Philistines. But this was not going to serve Israel, this, this crop. This was going to serve the Philistines. And he releases these foxes and it burns their field. Burning crops was not an unheard of action. People have done that in warfare all throughout the centuries. But the crafty nature of this is pretty unique. And while Samson is looking to hide him as the the one behind all this by doing it, everybody knows that Samson has a reputation for games like this. And it doesn't take long before people go, who else would do something like this but Samson? Who else would have the ability to do something like this but Samson? And the finger is of course, of course, pointed back at him. God takes one who has a selfish motive and uses it to weaken the enemy of God, so that the end of the oppressor would come a little sooner rather than later. Who else would do that? Who else would have the ability to do that beside the Nazarite? But who else could take somebody's selfishness and turn it to benefit the whole? God alone. And I said earlier, we do not know the type of oppression of the ancient world. But everyone who is born on earth knows oppressive sin. Everyone on earth is oppressed by it. And like an oppressor, like a slaver, it does everything to your soul and mind that it can to hurt you to change you, to manipulate you. Sin has a way of making you so afraid of truth and of righteousness that you think you need the sin. Sin has a way of making you so comfortable with your own desires and your own worship of self that you start to be afraid of what it would be like if you gave up your own ambitions and your own self and gave them over to the Lord. Sin is damaging. And as much damage as Samson did to, to uh, against the Philistines, we are right to fight sin and see it as an oppressor. As much as we see God's people fighting against an enemy in the Old Testament, we are to view sin as our enemy. We are to view evil as our enemy. We are to speak against it in the world. We are to call it out. And we are to demonstrate that it serves no purpose and never glorifies God and never benefits people. Sin is an oppressor, and it is an evil oppressor in how it changes your view of things. And it will retaliate. But let's remember that we are not without our own deliverer from it. We're to fight against it, but we fight against it with the help and strength of the Deliverer with us. Christ has delivered his people from the bondage and oppression of sin. It's been said that Greek culture saw freedom as the ability to have self-control. Our culture has interpreted freedom as the ability to do whatever you want without anybody telling you not to or putting any borders on your life. But the Greeks had an understanding that freedom was the ability to have self-control and to not be swayed by manipulated people or by your own passions. Interesting when we put it in that context and we think about how Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. If you are in Christ, then you are free from its ability to crush you and oppress you. Oh, it's still going to try and trick you and hold you down. But let's remember that the oppression of your own way, your own desires, your own self-fulfillment, and your own way of living becomes wrong when you grasp objective righteousness of God and you grasp the deliverance of Christ. Samson was the appointed deliverer of his people at this time. The oppression of sin often calls us to feel safer with the captive than with the deliverer. That's also its deceitful uh, its deceitful tactic. Remember when God's people said, why don't we just return to Egypt? Why? Because of fear, lack of faith. Samson was the person... Poor as he was, weak as he was, he was the person God raised up to fight against the Philistines in this passage at this time, and to bring Israel into its own control once again and give some peace, just as the judges had in the past. But when it came to the right thing, one had to trust God to use Samson this way. And it's unfortunate that we see the people of Judah not trusting God not finding much hope and faith in the Deliverer that God had raised up. Matter of fact, their lack of faith leads to betrayal. And when you look in chapters 10 through 11, you see it. It says, the men of Judah do not trust the ability of God to work through Samson. Maybe the evil will be less evil if we just give it what it wants. Maybe it won't bother us so much. Maybe it won't oppress us so much. And how many times do you and I, just go along with injustice or with petty sin because we are afraid of consequences or we are afraid of retribution. Perhaps we don't share the gospel with someone that we've gotten close to that really needs it because we're afraid that that might change our relationship with that person. Perhaps we don't stand up for morality because we are afraid of being ostracized. We fear our own image We fear retribution. We maybe fear uh, a problem in the workplace or a problem in school or a problem socially. Well, lack of faith leads to a betrayal of what we know is right. And here the men of Judah, in lack of faith, they betray Samson. And they give him over to the Philistines because they don't trust God to use Samson to bring total victory. And their lack of faith is a mark of the oppressor's skill and effectiveness to deceive and to control. Christ Jesus is the Deliverer of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Yet when He came to His own people, who should have known Him and recognized Him by all the prophecy, by all the foretelling, by all the proclamation of the gospel, they were the ones who were the stewards of the oracles of God. And here was the Word of God incarnate come to them. He came to them, and what did they do? They knew Him not. They received Him not. They rejected Him. Why? Because the deliverance He offered was too risky they didn't have enough faith to trust God or to trust him to do what he said he was going to do and at his trial you see the culmination of this when the Jewish leaders accused Pilate of not being Caesar's friend because he wants to let Jesus go the people who were oppressed by Caesar are now accusing a representative of Caesar for not being Caesar's friend like they are you see the irony there? They cry out, the Jewish leaders cry out and say, We have no king but Caesar. It's unbelievable that they would say that. Look how the oppressor has deceived. Look how the oppressor has grabbed them. And look at how their lack of faith has caused them to have betrayal. The oppressor seemed to win when Jesus was nailed to that cross. He seemed to win. But just as Samson breaks out of his ropes and bonds in this passage, and just as with ease he has total victory over this army of the Philistines here, Christ departed the tomb, Christ rose from the dead, Christ had victory over sin, death, and hell, and he smote it hip and thigh, just like we see here, with totality. The power of God is limitless. And the power of God is not bound by our fear, not bound by our oppression, not bound by our compromise, not bound by our sin, not bound by our deception. The power of God will accomplish everything. And when we do what is right in faithfulness and in truth and trust Him and look to Him and look to the Savior and look to the Deliverer, we will see something that is marvelous in our eyes. We know very well, but we sometimes, well, we don't put it into practice very well, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's the point of recording these unique events in chapter 15 to show the power and sovereignty of God. Men can't do these things on their own. God can. God does. Salvation is impossible with people. But God gifted it to you and gave you all the evidence you need to trust him in that. The evidence of Christ, the evidence of his death and resurrection, the evidence of the word of God when we have faith in the evidence and we have faith for what he says he's going to do and faith in what he has done and faith in what his future plan is for the work and deliverance of God. With great faith, you will see God use you and you will see God accomplish great things that you thought were impossible. If he can use a wet, spongy jawbone... To defeat an army, and he can use a sinner and rascal like Samson, and he can use a crucifixion to conquer sin, then he can use human beings, given the spirit and power of God, to show themselves love to their neighbor. He can use us to preach good news that will change a heart and mind And bring them into everlasting life and everlasting truth and real reality of existence. He can cause you to go out of your way to help someone who you would normally dismiss, to help someone who will never be able to pay you back or give you anything in return. He can cause you to go out of your way to be gentle to the least of these by his power and by his grace. When we start to see ourselves as jawbones, and we start to understand how God works. Who are we? <laughs> what can we do? But he works through us and he uses us. We are his instruments in his hands. We are his tools. We look at someone like Samson and we go, ugh, he's not anybody to admire. And yet he is the deliverer of this passage because the Spirit of God came upon him. In all things, we trust God's power. We don't want to be like the men of Judah, who out of fear handed over Samson. We don't want to say things like, however will our church grow? How will we ever move forward as God's people? How will we ever fix ourselves? We don't want to think in a self-centered way like that. How will we bring ourselves out of this? How will we improve things? God is able to raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. Abraham. The blessed power of Pentecost is still with us and the proclamation of God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forward, will have an effect where God will have, it, will make it have an effect. He owns us. This is his church. He will use us as he will and his power will service us and will be our source. He's made us to be unique for him. This is a unique church. We're unlike everybody else out there. Everybody in here is different from everybody else, and everybody here is different from everybody somewhere else. We are all unique, and this church has its own unique character. Don't you think that God will use that for his own glory? Why do we have to be like somebody else? Why do we have to do exactly what everybody else is doing? Why do we have to act exactly like everybody else? This church is used of God for his unique purpose, in his unique time, in his unique circumstance. It is all given His power. It is all given His grace. And He is the one we bow before, we worship, and we serve. Let's throw off the bondage and oppression of sin and of fear and of compromise and love the Lord our God supremely and worship Him in spirit and in truth, trusting and obeying His Word and living in the freedom of deliverance and of the gospel of Christ. At the top of your outline, you have the verse from Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be a witness to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Lord Jesus says, look, you're going to have the power to do this. And you will be a witness. Embrace that power. Embrace that deliverance. Embrace your Lord. Believe. Live. Be delivered. And glorify God, your Savior. The Lord of all, who frees you and gives you life and eternity in him for service. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to understand the weight of the oppressiveness of sin. Help us by your grace and power to trust Christ to be our deliverer and to overthrow it and to fight against temptation and it every day. Help us as a church to be fueled by you. Help us not to fear the retribution of the oppressor. And help us to walk closely with you, to delight in you, and to serve you, and to know you supremely. May your power be upon us. May your grace fuel us. May your glory be our goal and our end. We ask this and we plead this. In Jesus' precious name, amen.